global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. At A Better Way to Farm, we spend each and every day providing solutions for farmers to grow better crops and to make more money. Welcome back to the A Better Way to Farm podcast. We thank you for tuning in. Today, we have invited an individual from outside of our team, but one that we highly value with his experience and his education. He's a professor emeritus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Biological Systems Engineering Department. So please help me welcome to the microphone, Mr. Brian Holmes. Brian, thank you very much for joining us today and, and taking time out of your schedule. How's everything going? I'm assuming you're still in Madison, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I always like to start these things out by you formally introducing yourself. I always try to do a a decent job just giving the listeners kind of a little clue of who we're talking to today. But I know that I'll never be able to do justice for for what you've done and and what you currently do. So if you want to just take a minute and kind of tell us all a little bit about, you know, who you are, where you're from and what you do. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. Well, about 34 years I spent at the University of Wisconsin in extension working in the areas of uh, farmstead planning, livestock housing, feed storage, manure management, those kinds of things. So silage management was one of the areas that I programmed in. Oh, fantastic. Are you still kind of in that field a little bit or what do you do day to day? Well, day to day, mostly projects around the house since I am retired, but I do spend my Tuesdays working for a food pantry in Madison as a volunteer. So even a retired professor has a honeydew list. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, my own list and my wife's list. Yeah, that's fantastic. So one of the reasons why, obviously, we invited you on is that we we do some of these series. And right now we're kind of focusing on silage. We have a lot of producers kind of in the upper Midwest that are, you know, trying to grow, grow better silage just because they need the tonnage to help feed. You know, if we can do more on less acres, that's ultimately going to benefit some people. And that's where we kind of invite you in. So I guess the first question that I would ask you is when you look at the silage industry and, and growing kind of higher quality silage, why is silage density important really kind of to limit that dry matter loss. Right. So people need to understand that uh, oxygen is the enemy of silage and that oxygen supports aerobic organisms that consume the readily available carbohydrates. And these would be your uh, uh, your sugars and your uh, starches and your acids. So whenever those are consumed, you're losing dry matter. So we need to, uh, to limit the oxygen And this can be a concern at three different stages in silage. One is uh, when you're filling the storage. One is when you're during the storage period. And the other is uh, throughout the feeding period. Okay, so we need to uh, limit oxygen exposure during filling. Oxygen is entrapped in the pores of the forage as it's delivered to the silo. Porosity is a measure of the space between the forage particles. When packing the forage, the gas-filled porosity is decreased and some of the oxygen is forced out of the forage. This expelled oxygen then is no longer available to support the aerobic organisms that want to decompose the silage. 
The remaining oxygen is used by the aerobes to uh, decompose some of the readily available carbohydrates, and the uh, forage then becomes anaerobic. And basically, anaerobic means that there's no oxygen present. The anaerobic environment then supports the aerobes, which produce the the anaerobic environment supports the anaerobic microbes, which produce the acids thus lowering the pH. And this acid helps to preserve the silage uh, from aerobic decomposition. The objective should be to achieve an anaerobic condition quickly. And this is why it's important to fill the storage as quickly as possible, basically within a week's period of time or less. Um, Pack it densely, cover the forage with plastic if it's uh, going to be, the filling process is going to be interrupted. For example, if it's going to rain, and you have to stop the harvest, should cover it with plastic to keep the rain out and the oxygen out as well. And then once the storage is filled, it should be covered with plastic properly to keep the storage anaerobic. The anaerobic organisms are the ones that you want to support. And so that's one reason why you want to have an inoculant that works in an anaerobic environment. So you want to be anaerobic as quickly as possible and you don't really want to leave the uh, silage exposed to oxygen for very long. Right. Yep. Those are kind of the two biggest key points that I wanted to kind of get out of what you were saying. You got to get that stuff packed and you got to do it as quick as possible. You got to get that oxygen out of there. So kind of continue with how you're talking about kind of limiting that oxygen exposure during that uh, kind of that storage phase. Yeah. Yeah. So during the storage period, again, we want to keep oxygen out of the silage to keep it preserved. The Silage at the top of the storage, uh, horizontal storage, is almost always the lowest density material. If you measure density, you start high density at the bottom, and it decreases until you get to the top. And it's this uh, lower density material that allows oxygen to move through it fairly quickly. So you want the porosity to be as low as possible. And when you have higher porosity material at the top, this is where you need to keep the oxygen away. And this is why we uh, why we suggest uh, covering with plastic. So if you want to know if you've got a, an oxygen exposure problem, you're going to see silage heating. Uh, you'll see high levels of yeast and mold if you send it in for a sample. And in an extreme case, you might see white, brown, or black silage at the top. That's usually an indicator that you've had an oxygen exposure and for an extended period of time. So oxygen can enter this zone under a variety of conditions, one of which probably the worst case scenario is if you haven't used any plastic cover at all. Most people aren't doing that anymore, but there was a period of time when we had to convince them that plastic covers were important. If the plastic gets holes in it, oxygen can enter those holes and get into the silage. If you have joints, let's say you had multiple sheets of plastic that you had to join together. If those joints aren't sealed well, oxygen can penetrate through those. If you have a poor seal at the wall of a bunker or at the ground level of a pile or even in the front of a bunker, uh, oxygen can get through that seal. If you have insufficient weighting of the plastic, uh, oxygen can then get underneath the plastic and travel great distances uh, between the silage and the plastic. Feed Pulling back the plastic during feed out, if you pull it back too far, more than about three days worth of feeding, 
then all that um, silage in the top is, is exposed to oxygen for a long period of time. And then finally, not weighting the plastic at the cut edge. So when you're feeding out, you cut the edge of plastic. If you don't weight that plastic down, oxygen, air can get in underneath it, uh, especially if you have heavy winds blowing from that direction and the oxygen can get in that way. So this is why we recommend covering with plastic and doing so as quickly as possible after filling, lining the walls with plastic in the case of bunkers, and then overlapping that uh, plastic onto the silage about three feet so that the top cover comes over and forms a good joint. If we don't do that, we see a lot of shoulder spoilage that occurs when air is exposed at the plastic slash uh, wall joint. And uh, we want to provide a uniform weighting where the plastic meets the ground. So in the case of piles, all the way around the pile. And in the case of bunkers, at the ends. And here, gravel-filled bags are good for, for helping to seal that. And uh, also people use uh, sand or gravel piles on the end, uniformly providing a seal. And then providing uniform weighting on top of the plastic, if you're using tires or tire sidewalls, we'd like them to be touching each other. This helps to provide a pretty uniform weighting of the plastic against the silage. Inspecting the plastic and sealing the holes in the plastic with tape weekly in the warmer weather and bi-weekly in cold weather. And then pulling the plastic back only as far as needed to expose no more than three days worth of silage. And then uniformly weighting the feed-out uh, cut edge of the plastic, and people use gravel-filled bags for that. So ultimately, again, what we're trying to do is prevent the oxidation to occur in that silage because any time that that happens, you're losing that feed quality and you're losing some of that dry matter loss, some stuff that it's going to affect the way that that stuff feeds. You know, kind of looking at the when you first open up that, silo or like the the feed out face what are your recommendations there as soon as you open up the feed out face the whole face is exposed to oxygen so the importance of density at this point is critical because there's not much you can do to protect that face during the feed out period and so having a high silage density helps to limit that porosity which affects the rate at which uh, oxygen moves into the silage and also the distance that the oxygen would move into the silage. Therefore, making a high-density silage limits the oxygen exposure at the face and uh, thus the amount of dry matter loss that occurs at that face. Yeah, which is is vital. So would you say, because you keep talking about three days, which I absolutely love, that's something that I've never even really thought about is that when you're starting to remove these layers that you need to make sure that there's only up to a maximum of kind of three days exposed, does that kind of help you build your silage width? I know we're going to talk about some other things here in just a little bit, but would that kind of help determine that? Or where do you see that width versus height? We're going to talk about height in just a second, but where do you see that coming into play? Well, when you go through the process of sizing a silo, a horizontal silo, what you need to do is calculate the volume removed per day, which involves the density of the material, dimensions of the face, and then the distance that you move along the length of the storage. So the length times the width times the removal rate gives you the volume. And then the density times that volume gives you the quantity of material removed. So cubic feet times 
density pounds per cubic foot gives you pounds removed per day. And of course, you want to be able to feed the whole herd with that amount. Basically, then you back calculate once you know that quantity of feed removed, the volume to be removed, the width and the height and the amount of removal. And what you like to do is have enough removed per day that you keep ahead of the spoilage. I usually recommend that people design a storage for one foot removal per day so that you can keep ahead of that spoilage. And so then that determines your height and your width. And then your height should be based on what you can reach with your feed out equipment. So most people don't have the capability of reaching up 50 feet to remove feed out of there. So something maybe closer to 10 to 15 or 20 feet is the max you can reach up. And if that's what your limit is, then your width is determined from there. Now, all of the growers that listen to this podcast, they all do a fantastic job. So so I'm not talking about, you know, the people that we work with, but we've all seen those growers that stack their silage a little too high and then they have their front end loaders. And that I can't believe they do it because it scares me a little bit. That's always trying to, under, <laughs> that's trying to under, the undermine the. Yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> so if you're I know. If you're listening, that that's not you, but maybe your neighbor share share this podcast episode with your neighbor that is undercutting the top <laughs> the top portion of that silage because that's a big no no. He's got to do something different. Yeah, you uh, you're making a situation where you could have a f- silage fall, if you will, and that's definitely dangerous. And you know the other concern, of course, is silage avalanches, which can occur even without an overhang. So. We don't need to create any more problems than that are out there. No, no. We all have that hired man that creates problems daily. And this is not one of those problems that he needs to create. <laughs> so what factors would you kind of contribute to achieving that really high density silage that we're looking for? So we, we did a study some years ago, University of Wisconsin joined with the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. Rich Muck was my uh, colleague on that project. And then we had some uh, University of Wisconsin County Extension agents that went out and uh, sampled silage faces and asked a whole series of questions to determine what were the important factors that contributed to the density that was achieved. What we found was that the higher the weight of the axles on the tractor was an important factor. So tractor weight Increasing the number of packing tractors increased density. Increasing the height of the feed stored increased density. Decreasing the thickness of the forage layer before packing increased density. And then decreasing the delivery rate of the silage to the storage resulted in increased density. Now, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the decreasing the delivery rate of that forage to, especially the, you know, we're kind of talking about horizontal silos at the moment, but we live in a world where everything is bigger and everything needs to be done faster. You know, we have very large capacity forage harvesters. I absolutely love them because I'm attracted to big, shiny new things. Anything that that sparkles in front of my eye, that's where it goes first. And then I lose complete train of thought of where, where I'm going But with these custom operators that come in, because those large pieces of equipment are very, very expensive, so you just go hire this job done, and now they're out there chopping silage, and they're moving faster than fast. We all know that we've got to pack it, and we got to get it done soon, 
But these guys are coming in in days instead of weeks getting this stuff done. So when you look at, you know, these these kind of the custom operators that are coming in to fill these silage pits and these uh, horizontal silos, they fill them up so fast. How can you kind of, in theory, reduce the rate of that forage delivery because it comes in so fast? So, so how do these producers kind of overcome that issue? If they are compatible with the concept of trying to fill the storage quickly and thus prevent dry matter loss during the filling process. So to some degree, it's a good thing, but you have to be prepared to fill the storage and get the high density you want, even when that is happening. And you're not going to be able to convince the custom operator to turn off the machine while you finish doing a little more packing. And so there are some other things that you can look at. You can make sure that your tractors are heavy enough by adding enough weight to give you a practical weight on the tractor. And again, the heavier, the better within limits. You can add more packing tractors uh, to the storage. And we do this with the limitation, of course, of being able to do it safely on the surface that's available. Uh, you could increase the height of the silage, but again, within the limits of where you could reach with your removal equipment. And then you can increase the area over which the load of forage is spread to keep the, the layer thickness thin, about six inches or, or less. And uh, one way to do that is to use a long, shallow filling slope instead of a fairly steep one. This gives you more area over which to pack. You can fill piles at multiple filling points, so you could fill from the sides, fill from each end. This would give you more area over which to spread the silage. And then you can uh, fill more than one storage at a time so that uh, you're working on a bigger surface area to help get the packing done. Again, if you're listening to this, take that advice and and kind of heed it and and write these notes down. Because to me, why not? If you're going to increase your silage density and and make your silage better, why not run more than one spot at a time? Why not slide that that horizontal silo? I know it's you know it might be more tarp, more tires, more whatever. But to me, to get a a better quality product that's ultimately where we need to be at instead of just filling that silo as fast as possible and moving on to the next. I think that that is kind of key in this process is, is, you know what, if you got it, maybe you're, you're working both sides or something like that. Maybe that's the key to it. But I think that's, that's very, very insightful information. And one that I know that I'm going to go out and, and kind of use those pieces of information to make some of these growers better at storing their silage, making it more productive. Now, the other interesting thing is, and I do, when you look at the core competencies, I am a math guy, but a little bit ago, you you talked about how much math you had to do with the silage face and then the depth and the height and all that stuff. If you're a producer and, and you're not a big math person, are there some resources out there that are <laughs> available for for us folk that that didn't go into ag engineering because it was too much math and they decided to go into agronomy because it was easier <laughs> and then and then now they they sit here on a podcast platform possibly but what are those resources out there that some of these producers have to really achieve that high silage density so going back to your comment about filling multiple places one of the things that i've observed is that we oftentimes see producers building one big pile or one big bunker of silage, thinking that they're saving capital investment. 
But in reality, they probably should have more than that anyway. And the ability to fill both simultaneously would give them that opportunity to have more than one storage and a place to to put it while they're they're trying to fill it in a way that's going to give them high density. Going back to your comment about the math, we do have some spreadsheets available that can be used for sizing a storage. So you can plug in information about uh, the number of animals that you have and the amount of feed that you're going to be needing. And uh, these spreadsheets will help you size a pile or a series of piles or a series of bunkers uh, based on some information that you provide. So the math's already been taken care of. Y- yippee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, uh... yeah, so I'll tell you where you can find that in a minute. But on the subject of the density, we have developed spreadsheets for the density as well, based on the factors that we talked about earlier. And we want to try to achieve about 44 pounds of as-fed material per cubic foot or more. And this will result in 40% porosity or less. And if you think about it, 40% of the face of a bunker could be just open space between the particles. And that's considered a reasonably well-packed bunker. And so if you think about it, a poorly packed bunker might be 50 or 60% open space. Yeah. And so you can imagine how fast the air is going to move into something like that. So one of our spreadsheets is designed for bunker silos, and the other one is designed for piles. They allow the producer to enter the height of stored feed, the harvest rate, the packing layer thickness, the number of packing tractors, and the weight of each packing tractor. And then the the spreadsheets will calculate the bulk density, the dry matter density, and the porosity to see what you're likely to achieve in the process that you're either using now or would likely use if you make some changes. So it's easy to make changes in the spreadsheet and uh, see what the likely effect is going to be. These spreadsheets are available at the UW Extension Team Forage Harvesting and Storage page of the website, and you can find them by doing a search on Team Forage Harvest and Storage, and it'll probably be the first one that pops up. Yeah, I think if you Google that, it does populate right away. I I looked that up just a little bit ago, which are fantastic resources to be able to use. Now, before I ask a a final question as we kind of wrap this thing up, I'm just curious. I used to hear when I was younger we had a, a vertical silo. It was uh, concrete. It's kind of like the leaning tower of Pisa and it ended up falling over. But I heard back in the day, so you'll have to squash this rumor that when you would fill your vertical silos, you would just put an old mule in there, an old donkey that uh, was literally on its last leg and, and you just worked away to the top and, and that's where he lived the, the rest of his life. Is there any truth to those rumors that that that's how we used to do this back in the day. I, I've never heard that, but I've seen in some foreign countries where they will use animals to pack a bunker silo or a silage pile. I've never heard about the donkey idea, but uh, maybe uh, that was a while before my time. I think it was just a, a, a grandpa giving a grandson a hard time about <laughs> how they actually packed that thing. So, well, it, the concept. <laughs> Is probably a good one because the silage at the top of a tower silo is generally unconsolidated and the top 20 feet are really low density. 
and uh, that that's where you that's where you see a lot of the spoilage in tower silos is in that top 20 feet so then any recommendation other than using your farm animals to to pack the, the top 20 feet <laughs> And yeah, there's probably not too much practical that you can use. <laughs> I did, I did, I did talk to a couple of older farmers at a uh, at an egg show one time, and they came up and explained that they would put plastic on top of their tower silo silage, and then pump water on top of the plastic and use the water to help. Oh, sure. Weight weight down the 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 silage that was below it, which would be helpful. The problem is. Getting that water out of there in January, if you needed to open the silo at that point, might be a little more difficult. Yeah, it probably would be, especially if you were doing this in the north, possibly, you know, maybe maybe down in, in Florida or, you know, somewhere further south, you'd have better luck with that. I, I doubt you'd see many tower silos in Florida, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. So as we wrap this episode up, what, what other closing comments do you have it and and this one is going to be you're going to have to kind of put your thinking cap on for the new grower that we're working with is maybe this the first time into silage or kind of the first time thinking about a higher quality so a more dense silage what kind of recommendations other than going back and listen to this entire podcast what's the the one thing of you know the piece of advice or the one recommendation you would have for that producer that's just kind of starting out in this kind of higher quality silage side of things? Well, uh, probably the best thing to do would be to become as well-educated as you can on the subject, because there's a lot lot of important management things that need to be done to do it right. And if you're just starting out, uh, you probably don't have that knowledge inherently. Sizing the storage Properly is important in terms of being able to have adequate feed out rate. Packing uh, densely more. If, if they're just a smaller operator, they're likely to have lighter weight tractors available, if if any. <laughs> and so uh, they, they should be looking at either adding weight to their existing tractors or figuring out how they're going to get heavier tractors onto the pile. Maybe that means renting a tractor or two during that filling process. So. Uh, a lot of important factors that they need to be aware of. And also, you know, uh, they need to think about the safety aspects. We haven't touched on it yet, but the slope on the sidewalls and the filling surface should be three to one or less, three horizontal to one vertical. And that's to make sure the weight of the tractor is put onto the silage. Also, so that the tractor can actually drive on the silage. Too many people make the sidewalls too steep, and so nobody's going to drive on those, so they don't get density there. And uh, the steeper you make it, the more increased possibility of tractor rollover. So all of these factors come into play, safety, producing high-quality feed. They need to become aware of those uh, as before they get involved in the process. That's fantastic advice, Brian. I, I really, really appreciate that. And I also appreciate the time that you've spent here with all of our listeners today. I thank you for that. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully maybe even seeing you uh, face-to-face in the future. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. And thank you for tuning into our podcast today. really hope you enjoyed this episode on silage and how to make your silage even better. 
And as we leave this episode, like we do every time, we wish and we hope that you have a better day. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com. We'll be right back.